Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. Kobus van Staden is off uh, this week again. He is uh, at an academic conference in Buenos Aires where I'm not sure how much he's actually working or how much he's playing, but nonetheless, it's nice for him to get a break and he will be back again in a couple weeks. Uh, we're going to return to the issue of U.S.-China-Africa relations. Now, I know we've been focusing on this quite a bit. We did an interview with Audrey Ruby, uh, Aubrey Ruby, excuse me, about two, maybe three weeks ago on, on where the United States stands. She kind of left the conversation and left us feeling, thinking that there is some optimism. Uh, as many of you know who follow the show, I am nowhere near as optimistic about the prospects for American foreign policy in Africa. This is an administration that for six months now has really not mentioned the word Africa once. It's clearly not a priority. It's doing more to militarize its aid. Uh, and really, Donald Trump uh, does not see the world in the same way that I think past presidents have, where Africa played a role not just in foreign policy, but also in soft power diplomacy with aid and humanitarian development. Uh, that's not on his agenda. That said, that said, there are some opportunities out there maybe for the United States and China to, to collaborate. And on that front, this is why uh, we're going to bring it up. Uh, in the Washington Post, the monkey cage column, which I'm not sure why they call it that, um, there was a great column that came out by uh, our dear friend Janet Ohm, who's the former research manager at the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. For those of you who are in the geeky realm of academia, that is, of course, Professor Deborah Braudigam's home. Uh, she is the kind of noted scholar on China-Africa relations. And so Janet joins us again uh, to talk about her column that was recently published in the Washington Post. And by the way, Janet, uh, welcome to the show. And uh, congratulations, hey, you are on your way to Beijing very soon to become a Schwartzman Scholar. And for those of you not familiar with what the Schwartzman Scholar is, really it's the 19th and 20th century version of what the Rhodes Scholarship was for Britain. The Schwartzman Scholar is at Tsinghua University in Beijing, and it is really one of the most prestigious scholarships uh, anywhere in the world. So congratulations on that, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So you wrote, China's Belt and Road opens up new business in Africa for both the U.S. and China. Now, I thought that was a particularly interesting headline. And then in the kind of top of your story, you said, and I'm just going to quote, and I think this would be a good way to start our discussion. The Belt and Road announced by Xi Jinping in 2013 has conjured images of a colonial China pillaging natural resources and enabling dictators across Africa in exchange for U.N. votes. So let's start first by that part on the – if mm. it's not this pillaging of resources, which a lot of critics, particularly in Washington, look at One Belt, One Road. They look at it in very, dare I say, almost Leninist terms in the sense that Lenin defined uh, capitalism by countries going into the developing world, extracting natural resources, and then selling finished goods back to it. A lot of people see that One Belt, One Road is exactly that. So if it isn't this colonial pillage, what is it? Right. Well, let me start by first saying that um, the reason I focus on the Belt and Road is because it seems like this big, um, you know, project that a lot of that is accumulation of a lot of the fears and uh, speculation that people have had about China's overseas projects. So, you know, overall at the China Africa Research Initiative, we've looked at Chinese finance and other activities in Africa. And now this Belt and Road uh, connecting Asia, Africa and Europe is seen as this big colossal project. So kind of connecting the dots there. Um, 
you know, a lot of the things that we've observed in terms of the Belt and Road or what people perceive will be projects under the Belt and Road. Um, over and over again, we see that this is a very much an econ- economic stimulus project. A lot of these um, uh, projects are based on ch- Chinese domestic needs, um, various construction companies, various uh, manufacturing factories needing to find opportunities abroad, needing to find cheaper labor. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, we see that this is kind of the first and foremost motivation. Um, I think, you know, what I was trying to get at in that uh, paragraph in my article was that oftentimes people look at the Belt and Road or these big Chinese commitments abroad and immediately jump to a conclusion that there's a political agenda and that's the main motivation. But um, as anybody who studies China and Africa um, in depth understands, there's a very complex network of actors. Um, There isn't necessarily this concrete strategy from the beginning, even though the Belt and Road is, um, you know, marketed as something that's a big package. Uh, It's a lot messier on the ground. You know, things fail (laughs) when um, people, you know, try to implement something in reality. And uh, so, you know, rather than there being some kind of big political motivation behind a lot of these projects, a lot of the time it's a market driven economic stimulus project. So um, that was the kind of more complexity I was trying to get at. I wonder if the perception of Belt and Road depends on, on where you are in the world. So you say it's largely an economic agenda, which probably is true. Uh, but I think if you're sitting in India, uh, the framing of the issue is far more military and mm. political. Mm-hmm. India feels encircled now, especially with the opening of the of the new naval base in Djibouti, which gives the Chinese Navy access to the Indian Ocean, uh, and then also an expansion of China's presence in Sri Lanka. And so, but at the same time, if you're sitting in Kenya, where the new standard gauge railway mm. uh, was opened, and the port of Mombasa is being rebuilt by the Chinese, and new airports, uh, Kenyatta Airport was rebuilt by the Chinese. Um, that looks like a, a wonderful economic opportunity. So, how much of it actually depends on where you are in the world and how you see Obor? Mm, that's actually a really good point. Um, I think that there is more nuance to this project than a lot of people uh, assume from the from the beginning. So, I think that's a very fair point. That depending on where you are located on the pro- uh, proposed Obor. Um, you know, your perceptions will be very different of what it means. And maybe we just have to wait and see um, for, you know, five, 10 years down the road, what kind of projects do take place, what projects don't, um, whether a lot of these projects that are more uh, military oriented do take off, or um, whether a lot of these infrastructure projects in African countries will be taking on um, more of the Belt and Road projects. So um, I think we'll have to wait a little bit to see, you know, what shape the Obar takes. But um, I think it's very fair to say that we shouldn't come to any conclusions that Obar is just one thing or another. It's probably very different for people um, all over. Just to give a sense for, for those who, who have not been following the development of Obor, part of it is government, but also I think, and you alluded this to in your piece too, there's a certain chaos to the whole initiative because there's a lot of private enterprise that's also participating in it. And Mm -hmm. so it's not as centralized, I think, as a lot of people want to think it is. And it's not as coordinated. It is this thing that is a policy doctrine driven by Beijing. But underneath that, uh, there's a lot of actors that are engaging in this. And so it doesn't have necessarily the cohesion that I think a lot of people may assume. 
Um, but you talk about, let's go to the, the, the kind of the core thesis of what your essay was. You say that this is going to open up opportunities for both the U.S. and China and Africa. Let's, let's go right to it. Tell us how you see this benefiting both the U.S. and the Chinese. I mean, it's clear to me what the Chinese are going to get out of it. Where does the U.S. fit in all of this? Sure. Um, well, again, you know what I was saying before that the OBAR is not like the first of its kind. There's been a lot of efforts um, on the part of Chinese institutions in terms of overseas finance, overseas infrastructure projects, etc. And so I, you know, in writing this article, is looking at patterns that we've seen before. And one of the things is that uh, with this, you know, the AIIB, um, various uh, Chinese uh, development banks trying to restructure the way they do things abroad, there have been some efforts to try and enhance environmental or social standards, for example. And um, in in those cases, uh, you know, that's where there's more of an opportunity for collaboration from the American side. So... For example, when the AIAB came out recently with uh, some, uh, you know, logo or mo- uh, motos that they, uh, you know, were writing about, one of them was lean, green, and clean. And um, a lot of people saw that kind of as a reaction to criticism that various Chinese overseas projects have had in terms of environmental degradation or not um, adhering to local labor standards, those kind of things. So social and environmental standards. And so, um, you know, in the past, uh, there's been this kind of um, a a lot of Western or uh, American firms, right? This is not across the board necessarily the case, but a lot of these firms that have stronger environmental or social standards, um, there's been some effort on the part of Chinese counterparts to try and adopt some of those norms, perhaps. And so um, because, you know, truth be told, until now, a lot of those norms around environmental and social standards have been shaped by more traditional development partners. And so, you know, there's an effort on the part of these Chinese institutions to maybe adopt some of those norms or at least Um, you know, respond to criticism in a way where they are more in sync with some of these traditional development partners. Yeah. So the AIIB uh, is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which in many ways is seen as a rival to the Asian Development Bank or even the World Bank building infrastructure around the world. Uh, What a lot of people are assuming or uh, thinking that the Chinese are doing is rather than sinking all of their savings into American treasury bonds, which they've done for the past 20 or 30 years, they're now deploying some of those savings into infrastructure development with a focus on Asia, but not exclusively on Asia. Uh, but you taught, you haven't kind of answered my question about where, where you think the U.S. will come into this. And the reason I'm kind of skeptical here, and I said this at the top of the show, is because... Mm-hmm. There is no evidence that I can see whatsoever that the United States is engaged with Africa right now. Now, U.S. diplomatic programs may be continuing, so PEPFAR, uh, some of the aid programs, a lot of these, these things that have been in motion for the past 15, 20 years have momentum and inertia. But there is no new energy coming out of Washington for any kind of initiatives, much less partnerships or any kind of you know collaboration with the Chinese, given that the White House has done nothing but, well, not maybe not nothing, that might be exaggerating it, but has been very critical of the Chinese and skeptical of the Chinese to the point where it would seem remarkable if they could actually collaborate anywhere in the world, much less in Africa. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's a very fair point. I might want to push back a little bit on, on that because I think that as much as the current administration has 
you know, not prioritize certain Obama era um, Africa policies or, you know, not really look beyond um, opportunities to Africa, you know, beyond transactional opportunities. Um, there are still, you know, for every group of, uh, people in DC right now that are trying to move away from Africa, which is, you know, very much a lot of people in the government right now, um, there are still people who are very committed to these policies before, you know, there are people who are now out of the Obama administration. There are people who have worked maybe in more of the nonprofit space. There are other, uh, tools for engagement in Africa. Uh, from the U.S. side. And I think that there's still, uh, you know, strong group of people that want to remain engaged in the opportunities in Africa. The problem, of course, like you said, is that the current administration is not prioritizing that. And we do uh, a lot of these initiatives do need strong government support. Yeah, and I, um, I, but so, I think it's fair to point out the fact that this is not necessarily a Trump initiative. Obama had a terrible yeah. record in Africa. I mean, this was a guy who paid almost no attention to the continent out of fear that he was going to be associated with it, already under pressure from Trump and the right wing that he was not a legitimate president because of his birth. But he really did not pay much attention to Africa. Uh, and this was something that a lot of Africans criticized him, that only in the towards the end of his, of his second term did he start to go and spend any time there. But Power Africa, which was his eight or nine billion dollar initiative, was a failure. Um, and I don't think there's any major policy initiative that Obama had in Africa that is that will be memorable in any way. So in some ways, yes, we can put the burden at Trump's doorstep, but Obama himself mm -hmm. didn't do much, it seems like. So this trend of disengagement from Africa uh, seems like it's been on a, you know, a slow, a slow decline. And I just I mm. see China taking advantage of the fact that the United States appears to be disengaging and filling that void. I'm not trying to put you on the spot to defend the United States or the, any of the administrations, just kind of pointing out that I think the United States has been um, on a downward cycle with regards to Africa. No, I think that's all very fair. Um, and I guess time will have to tell to see how much a lot of these institutions are going to, um, you know, move away from various African commitments. But uh, yeah, in terms of, you know, since we are at this point in time, um, looking at what kind of opportunities might exist for trilateral cooperation, um, you know, since there are still engaged actors from all sides. Um, a lot of the social and environmental standards, like I mentioned before, you know, even if there wasn't a strong track record or some of these uh, projects from the American side did not fulfill their commitments entirely, there is still um, there are some norms or practices or things that have shaped to some extent the way that um, you know Chinese counterparts have been working in Africa. So um, I think that you know it's a dynamic relationship. We'll have to wait and see how things turn out. Um, and, uh, you know, just to say that some of the things that have existed have shaped, uh, things on the Chinese side. So, and, and um, one point for optimism, I think, and, and I, I'm not sure if you mentioned this in your article or not, but certainly is the peace process in South Sudan, where the United States and China have been working as, as equals in many parts to resolve this civil conflict unsuccessfully to date. But I think it gives us some indication that there is at least a window of opportunity um, we saw a little bit also in the Ebola crisis from a couple of years ago, where the United States and China were two of the largest uh, aid donors. The United States gave significantly more, somewhere around $750 million, whereas China was about $100 million. But it was, again, another indication that their interests are aligned. And what you mentioned in your piece, which I thought was so interesting, is that both China and, Afri uh, and the U.S. see a stable Africa as in their core long-term mm -hmm. interests. 
So at least they have that in common as well. Um, so, but you you also brought up the question of manufacturing, and that, I found that to be very interesting. Talk about how you think the the three the three regions can benefit uh, from increased manufacturing in Africa. So, um, from the Chinese side, you know, I've written about this in the article, which is that there's a need. Um, a lot of these manufacturing firms are now facing much higher wages in China. And so naturally, they're going to look for places in Southeast Asia and Africa to move some of their operations to. So the benefit on the Chinese side is more clear. Um, in terms of on the American side, you know, it's a little bit more nebulous, but uh, some of the previous Obama era um, initiatives, for example, um, or AGOA, Right. Some of these uh, initiatives African Growth and Opportunity Act, which is the free trade agreement between Africa and the U.S. Correct. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Exactly. So, um, you know, focus on African exports. The made in Africa is actually really taking off in some of these countries and um, uh, trying to train local labor to be self um, to uh, work on their own in these factories, uh, very locally sourced materials, these kind of things. So. I think that, um, you know, from the American side, at least, there have been various institutions and actors that have been interested in supporting made in Africa products. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know as much about um, American manufacturing as I do uh, Chinese manufacturing in Africa. But, uh, you know, there are some initiatives like AGOA that do demonstrate that there is an interest in um, supporting the African market. Yeah, Aubrey Ruby, who was our guest a couple weeks ago, uh, she's a Washington, D.C.-based scholar and advisor on African affairs. She wrote this article in Newsweek, um, and we had a, a whole show on it, so if you just look into our archives, you'll see it, where she said that the United States shouldn't compete head-on with the Chinese in Africa. Instead, they should do what they do best. So financial services, consulting, uh, IT, mm -hmm. these are the areas where the United States excels. And as the Chinese move in and, per se, do manufacturing construction, uh, Americans can provide professional services that are, in many ways are better than what the Chinese can do. So I thought that was a very interesting point, and it reminded me a lot of some of the points that you're making in your article here. But I think, you know, one of the, the key kind of points to look at is where do you see the tripartite relationship going? Um, do, you, do you, in your kind of estimation as somebody who was based in Washington, D.C., do you see the Americans being able to, to keep up with the Chinese or are the Americans kind of backing out of Africa and focusing on other parts of the world? I don't know if it's so much that, um, you know, the current administration is backing out of Africa and focusing on other parts of the world as it is. The, again, the America first policy where backing out of Africa and then trying to to uh, turn inwards a little bit. Um, there, it's not just Africa, but I think a lot of commitments to other developing countries, other commitments, uh, for example, even the Paris Agreement, right? These global commitments that um, the current administration had been pretty committed to. Uh, there's, you know, moving away from that. So, you know, I think it's more of a, a turning inward kind of situation, which isn't very um, promising for trilateral cooperation in some ways. But, but, you know, again, I think there are a lot of people, a lot of um, groups of uh, foreign policy experts and practitioners that are still very intent on making um, uh, American foreign policy a priority uh, in Africa and other developing countries. So, you know, I think in terms of any trilateral cooperation, maybe it won't be through 
um, you know, traditional channels in the government. It might be actually some other kinds of institutions that um, you might have to sidestep uh, you know, the government to find some trilateral opportunities. And certainly one of the next battlegrounds in Africa, particularly in business, is going to be on the, the e-commerce space and in the mobile internet space. And what mm. I think is so interesting, mm-hmm. again, if you look at companies like Facebook that are currently dominant in Africa, uh, I, you know, and again, I'm not too well versed in this, and, I'm, and I have several friends who work at Facebook, and I'd be interested to find out if they are prioritizing mm-hmm. the continent, because it is certainly on the minds of people like Jack Ma, who is the CEO mm. of Alibaba, who was just in Nairobi. Uh, he left behind uh, somewhere in the range between one and 200, I think 100, oh, $10 million for 200 startups. And he is, more importantly, bringing Alipay, which is the online mobile payment system, to South Africa. Uh, WeChat, which is partly owned by Tencent, uh, Nashpers, which is South Africa-based, is trying now to bring their mobile payment system all the device makers are there. So the Chinese are now zeroing in on Africa in, in a place where the Americans have long been dominant, which is online e-commerce and, uh, and web, uh, web services. So it will be interesting if that might be a space that we see either right, competition right. or collaboration. But that is certainly where the Chinese are coming into a space that was dominated for a long time by the Americans in the form of Google, Facebook, and some of those mm. and, and companies like PayPal. The article is uh, China's Belt and Road opens up new businesses in Af- new business in Africa for both the U.S. and China. Uh, Janet Ohm was the former former uh, China Africa Research Initiative project manager, and if you've been in the in the China Africa space, you will have seen the work that she's done at Kerry on her way now to Beijing, China where she will be a Schwartzman Fellow. Very quickly, um, you know, we have a lot of students that listen to our programs, uh, a lot of students who, a lot of African students who want to or are currently studying in China. So I think it might be fun just to kind of say, what are you looking forward to most going back to school in Beijing? Sure. Um, I mean, Eric, you and I were talking about this before we started uh, talking on the podcast. But for me, it's, you know, I think it's a very interesting time in both American and Chinese politics. Obviously, um, the Congress in the fall in China, in Beijing, seeing that potential leadership transition will be very fascinating. Um, And I think I, you know, obviously staying uh, focused on the China-Africa space, but trying to get an understanding of Um, being away from the United States, how people perceive China's role in the global order now. And being in Beijing and talking to uh, Chinese policymakers, Chinese scholars, Chinese peers who have not been um, in the U.S. for a couple years, maybe. So they haven't been here uh, in D.C., you know, witnessing this leadership transition. And so um, what kind of view they might have in terms of the role of China in uh, developing countries, just having that local perspective, I think, will be really interesting and fascinating for me. So I'm, uh, I think most of all, just looking forward to being back in Beijing um, and kind of uh, diving deep into some of these issues. I guess I'm most interested to hear what other students and how they see the world. How has the Chinese worldview among Mm -hmm. 19, 20, 21 year olds changed? Uh, do they see the world in different ways, in more maybe more combative ways with the United States and the in the traditional powers? Do they see the world in more optimistic ways, as China now is uh, is a far more expansive power than it was just a few years ago? 
So it'll be interesting to check in with you in a, in a few months after you've been there to hear what other students and what the worldview is of some of your classmates who are at Tsinghua University. So we wish you the best of luck. And, you know, thank you so much for taking time out of your vacation in Madison, Wisconsin to join us. Uh, and uh, we're just so excited for you and, and your new adventure at the Schwartzman Fellowship. Thank you so much, Eric. So uh, again, uh, moving from Washington, D.C. to Beijing, China, Janet Ohm, thank you so much for joining us. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.